Did you know that word of mouth is the best way to grow a podcast? It helps us expand our audience by getting us more notice and keeps us going and growing. So please, folks, spread the word to family and friends. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. Our narrative takes us to Florida and the arrival of French Protestant Huguenot colonists in 1562. French Florida was a colonial territory established by French Huguenot colonists in what is now Florida and South Carolina between 1562 and 1565. The colonial endeavor was started following plans by the French Huguenot leader, Admiral of France, Gaspard de Coligny, to establish New World colonies where his persecuted Protestant co-religionists could safely establish themselves. A first landing in Florida territory was made by Jean Ribot and a second by René Goulin de Laudonnière in 1562 before moving north where he set up Charles Fort on Paris Island, South Carolina. Eric Yanis of the Other States of America podcast has graciously agreed to share his telling of this incredible story. This is the story of French Florida. Florida at this time was most securely claimed by the Spanish, who basically considered everything north of Mexico in North America to be Florida. By that same token, the English claimed pretty much all of North America because of the voyages of Giovanni Caboto, or John Cabot. But then there was the French with their own claims to North America, including Cartier's settlements and Giovanni de Verrazano's expedition up the eastern coast of North America. The early French maps chunked North America into a northern section that would be New France and a southern section that would be Spanish Florida, with a nice convenient ocean in the middle, or sea, called the Sea of Verrazano. As the decades wore on, it became more and more apparent that this sea was imaginary. North America is one huge thing. There isn't a middle or Mediterranean-like sea. And so in the 1550s, with Spain and France at war with one another, France finally said, you know what? Maybe Florida is part of New France. If we can put men there, make a settlement there, that's more than the Spanish have managed to do up to this point. Maybe Florida is part of New France. And this will be the enduring question for the entire saga of French Florida. Is Florida part of New France? Now, why was Florida so ripe for the picking against the mighty Spanish Empire? Remember, they toppled the Incans. They toppled the Aztecs. Why haven't they taken over Florida? What happened there? Well, if you remember, Ponce de Leon ventured through Florida, along with many other explorers, and they all either ended up in failure, colonies that fell apart, and leaders who were killed by natives. Disaster. Florida became a horror zone for Europeans. They were afraid of it. The rumors of cannibals that started in the Caribbean had found their way onto the mainland of Florida, and the natives were seen as horrifying, gigantic creatures who'd feast on Christian flesh. As such, the relationship between Europeans and natives and what would be Spanish Florida were limited to the natives picking through shipwrecks for metal objects and other useful things they couldn't make themselves. And then this is where the French enter the story, because they had little hideouts in little coves along the coast, well guarded from the natives, well hidden from the Spanish, and the French privateers, basically state-sanctioned pirates, would raid the Spanish Caribbean and places further south. And so at this point, France is valid in asking the question, does Spain really own Florida? Nobody in Florida seems to know about it at all. We have pirating operations all over it. And our territory of New France runs right into Florida without any natural barrier. So why not take a shot at it? But who in the French Empire 
would be of the right mind to challenge a Spanish possession and plant a French colony in a Spanish territory when Spain and France are sometimes allies. They're Catholic nations that sometimes get along, sometimes they war with each other. Why plant a colony in a land maybe full of cannibals that might be just given back to Spain once they're in peace with one another? Who would do that? The answer is the Huguenots. Without the Huguenots, we don't have the epic story of French Florida. The Huguenots were, very simply, French Protestants, mostly Calvinists. Now, the term Huguenot itself is shrouded in mystery as far as its derivation is concerned. The Catholic Church often had a violent reaction to the Protestant Reformation. In France, it was no different. And so the first generation of Huguenots, and even the second and third, they were hidden. They were underground. What exactly they did, how they organized themselves, is still a mystery to this day. We don't have the documentation. They were a secret, hidden group. And so Huguenot might be derived from a Germanic phrase, either German or Dutch, for housemates. Basically meaning these are people who are secretive into themselves and they're housemates. But there's five or six other good guesses as well. No one knows the truth, and so it's not worth arguing about. Huguenot, French Protestants. And again, most of these Protestants were Calvinists, to be very specific. Now remember, there's Martin Luther. Starts Lutheranism. John Calvin comes along a generation later than Luther. He's French, of course, he's a lawyer, and he's introduced to Protestantism while living in Paris. Eventually, his interests become of public record, and he has to leave France. The Catholic Church is an arm of the French government, and the priests are a protected class. And so if you have these religious dissidents come along, it's not so much that they just don't agree with you on religious, non-earthly things. They're in direct opposition to your government. Anyway, John Calvin, he has to leave France makes his way through the German states, and becomes fully immersed in this new Protestant world of thought. And he's viciously smart, both on the worldly legal level as a lawyer, and then on the theological level as a thinker. And he publishes these books, and the city of Geneva gives him the city. Here's Geneva, take it over. And at age 32, he is the ruler of a city-state. John Calvin was a sort of Lenin to Luther's Marx. John Calvin came about at just the right time, because he may have well saved Protestantism when it was at its low ebb. Just when the Catholic Church was starting to make gains on the tracks that Luther put down, John Calvin comes by, and the type of Protestantism he creates is a supercharged version, super individualistic, super heady. And while much of the German states and the Nordic countries would stay old-school Protestant, places like France, Scotland, the Puritans in England, the Dutch Reform in the Netherlands, they take on the Calvinist strain. Here are some general Calvinist, Huguenot, Dutch Reform, Puritan, Calvinist qualities. First of all, they believed in predestination. Your life has already been determined for you. It's already been written. They often use the term a watchmaker God. So the entire universe is like a watch. It's been designed to tick off in certain places. The arrows are going a certain way. And everything is pre-planned because God is perfect. He created the universe. There is a plan. You're part of that plan, which sounds great. And it does. Gives you a warm feeling inside because you feel like you belong to something great and immense. But by that logic, you don't really have free will, do you? Your life is part of that watch. You're a second ticking away and it's already been preordained. So this takes us to an important quality of these Calvinist religions, at least at this point in history. I'm not talking about today and their many descendants back then. So if everything's preordained, including your life, predestined, that means you are either part of the elect or the damned. You have either been selected before you were even born, your soul was put aside for those who will be saved and be one with God and have a heavenly reward, or you were put in the trash bin for the wicked soul that you are 
and your garbage and hell and eternal fires of damnation are waiting for you. It's one or the other. Now, this is different than the Catholic Church, where through faith alone, you could be saved, right? Everyone can be saved. It's the Catholic, the universal church. Everyone can be saved if you come to it. No, the Calvinists believe you are from birth or before birth chosen. You're either going in the trash bin or you're going up to heaven. Now, which one is it going to be? You have no control over this. You could be the best person here on earth, do all the good things you think you're supposed to do, go to the Calvinist church of your choice. You're still going to hell if you weren't selected. Predestination. So unlike the Catholic community, we're all part of the body of Christ together, the Calvinists were obsessed with moral self-control. The individual has to govern themselves. And if they can do so successfully and live a virtuous life, it's a good sign that they were part of the elect, that they're going to be saved. And so morality becomes very important. Self-control becomes very important. The belief that government can regulate your behavior becomes important. That's true up to this day. And earthly things must take a backseat to heavenly things. Calvin wrote that the earth must be worth nothing to us. And so the Huguenots were mostly French Calvinists, not just Protestant, more specifically Calvinists. This was just incompatible with the French government and the Catholic Church. And the Huguenots were probably right in thinking that the Catholic Church had become of this world. They're literally a branch of the French government. And according to Calvinism, they need to reject this world. They need to work for something better. There is no compatibility between the two bodies. And what's going to happen in the decades after French Florida, we're going to see nine civil wars. France has nine civil wars in 32 years. And millions of people are going to die. Protestants and Calvinists especially, like Puritans, were obsessed with finding out if they were part of that elect. Were they part of that special group? So something they would do is they would make investments. They would work hard at skills. They would take risks to see if they would pay off. And if they received good fortune, that would be seen as a sign from the heavens that you were part of the elect, the special group. You got special treatment. And so what group in France would be crazy enough to take on the great Catholic empire of Spain? and make a settlement in a land maybe populated by savage cannibals, the Huguenots. And so in the 1550s and 1560s, the Huguenots were becoming desperate because they could sense the tension. They could feel the wars on the horizon. And their own numbers were swelling. Throughout the 1550s, the Huguenots grew to be as much as 15% of the French population. Suddenly at the beginning of the 1550s, very small minority. By the end of the 1550s, a sizable minority. The Huguenot cause became political. You had religious Huguenots. Then you had political Huguenots. Now, this is a whole new thing. These would be people who could rally around the Huguenot cause, but who were doing so for political reasons, because they didn't like the current power structure, who was in charge, who was making the laws, and they would be the new vanguard. With the Huguenot cause becoming both religious and political, it gained a lot of followers up at the higher echelons of French society including the admiral of the French Navy himself. These high-ranking Huguenots, both within the Huguenot movement and the government of France, were concerned with how are we going to fit these new Protestants, our followers, our people, people who believe what we believe, how will they fit into French society, which is so very Catholic from both the cultural and political level. Now, in the 1550s, Admiral Coligny set up colonies in and around what we would now call Brazil, right in the heart of Latin America. A large portion of the settlers in these colonies were Huguenots. The admiral put them on the fringes of the empire versus other Catholic powers. Because who could you trust inside of the French empire to be loyal against another Catholic power? Well, your Huguenot minority. 
Unlike the Admiral's failed colonies in the past, Florida would be right on the edge there. You might be able to get away with digging in. And the Admiral was no political Huguenot. He was a personal friend of John Calvin, and he took his religion seriously. Who would be in charge of French Florida? Who would help him with his venture? He chose two lesser nobles, René de Laudonnaire, his own kin, and Jean Ribot, both experienced naval men and soldiers and staunch Huguenots from the north of France. Ribot, having some experience in the New World, having worked for Sebastian Cabot, John Cabot's son, Giovanni Caboto's son, and converted after that point to Protestantism. Now, this is where the American myth of French Florida kind of overshadows it. You have a group of Protestants coming to the New World to seek religious freedom by finding a little tiny area of the earth that they can isolate themselves and be free. That's the myth that we apply to Plymouth, and some have applied it to French Florida. It's like the Plymouth 60 years beforehand. But we can't think of it that way. That's how American writers want to color this venture. But many people would be involved in French Florida simply for the money. And a large chunk of the population, although not the majority, weren't even Huguenots. So let's not think of that Puritan myth. Let's not think of that Plymouth Pilgrim myth. Let's not color French Florida with that. Instead of religious dissidents looking for freedom, these were religious dissidents looking to fit in to an empire, followed by a large chunk of their population that is just going to be there for profit and adventure. Laudonnaire and Rabot are tasked with scouting out a new location to start this new colony. And so in February of 1562, Coligny finances some ships for them, and they head off to what would now be the southeast coast of the United States. Not exactly Florida, because remember, Spanish Florida was a much larger amount of territory. They spot the coast of North America at the very end of April, and they make landfall on May 1st. Where they landed, there was a beautiful river, and they named it the River of May. Now we call it the St. John's River. Jean Ribot remarked that the land was the fairest, fruitfulest, and pleasantest of all the world. As they traveled up the coast, they left large marble columns, both marking their progression and claiming the land for France. Furthermore, they ran into some extremely friendly natives called the Tamuka. They're described by the Spanish and the French as just giants with tattoos all over their bodies. And while the Spanish feared them as cannibals, the French very quickly realized that they were friendly. They wanted to trade, and they had a healthy hatred of the Spanish, who occasionally plundered their way through the peninsula of Florida. The Spanish found them easy prey from time to time, because although at their height, the Tamuka may have numbered anywhere from 200,000 to 900,000 in population, they were not united. They were not like the Haudenosaunee far to the north, and existed in separate chiefdoms, perhaps as many as 35. Now, the Tamuka greatly outnumbered the Iroquois at any point in their pre-Columbian or early Columbian existence, but were never united. So if the two groups, which had no connection to one another, but just in my mind, in an alternative reality, if they came to blows, a united Tamuka would completely overwhelm the Haudenosaunee. But that never happened. There's some debate over where the Tamuka language came from. It might have actually came from a Caribbean or South American group from long ago. Or though some people classify it as a Suan language, but then most people say, no, it's probably not part of that. So they spoke a language that was remarkably different than those around them. They had matriarchal systems. They had clans. They practiced slash-and-burn agriculture. They had pottery. They used weirs for fishing. They had round dwellings, not like longhouses. They had similar crops to all the native groups in the southeast United States. Corn, beans, squash. But they also had melons and all sorts of tropical things that you would find growing in the southeast United States or in Florida. 
And that's part of the reason why there were so many Tamuka, because they lived in an area where the land just gave and gave and gave that had three or four growing seasons. The Tamuka had classes. They had hierarchies. There were certain people who were treated better. There were certain people who were the leaders, and they were inaccessible to the lower classes. I find this generally, the further you go in North America, as far as the Native American groups go, the more social hierarchy there is, the more distinction, the more classes there are, the less social mobility. The Tamuka have chiefs. They have kings of sorts. And you can't make it into that class unless you're part of a certain clan, certain family. And this upper class of chiefs, they ruled over five to ten villages each. And so there were lots of little Tamuka states all warring with each other. So when the French showed up, were far different than the Spanish in their attitudes. The Tamuka were like, thank God, I have an ally here. And as much as they were thinking about the Spanish, they were also thinking about their other enemy chiefs in the Tamuka villages just over the next hill. The Tamukans, in speaking with the French, realized very quickly they were interested in gold and silver. And so, suddenly, all these stories begin to appear. And the French were hearing about cities of gold further inland, in a magical land called Appalachia, up in the mountains. And if you would only ally with us, we could show you exactly how to get there. So here are the French, surrounded by friendly strangers in the wonderful Southeast United States. In May, weather's great. There seems to be food everywhere. There's magical cities of gold just over the next hill. Laudonair and Rabot, along with their men, say, you know what? We're just supposed to scout out the area, but seems like this place is heaven. Let's just start building a settlement right here. Some of us will go home. Some of us will stay. The party scout out a good site on what is now Paris Island, South Carolina. Again, Florida is a much larger area at this time than the current U.S. state. And despite the extended time that it took to build an entire fort, most of the party were still enthralled by the American South, and most of the people wanted to stay. Rabot and Laudonaire were going to leave. They had to put somebody in charge, but they also had to decide who would have the opportunity to stay. From their group, they only chose 30 people, and they put in charge of those 30 people, Captain Albert de la Pieria, and they named their new fort Charles Fort, after King Charles IX, King of France. And then on June 11th, Rabot and Laudonaire left Charles Fort for France, promising to return in six months' time to their little Huguenot paradise in the subtropics of the Americas. After centuries, most Huguenots have assimilated into the various societies and cultures where they settled, including Catholic Quebec in Canada. Today, there are some Reformed communities around the world, including the United States, that continue to retain their Huguenot identity. Calvinists in the United Protestant Church of France still retain their beliefs and Huguenot designation. Next time, we continue the saga of 16th century Protestant settlements in the territory of Florida. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.